Kia ora, and welcome to the Story Hub podcast, helping you live smarter and be inspired by the journeys of successful Kiwi professionals. We believe you can learn from others' mistakes and achievements, and that what is possible for your life is greater than you currently imagine. My name is Kathan, your host and creator of the Story Hub. This week we have Pat Peoples, an NZ Olympic rower and now managing director and owner of Ship Construction based in the North and South Islands. Pat shares about his rowing journey getting back into it after years of not competing in any sport to representing New Zealand at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Hear how he joined Schick as general manager in 2000 when there were only 17 staff with the business solely focused on residential house pads and how over the last 20 years he and the team have transformed the business into a construction company with over 200 staff. This is a conversation about leadership and living by your why. I'm so excited to share it with you all. I hope you're ready to learn. Let's jump into episode five of season two on the Story Hub podcast. Okay, so start at the beginning, I suppose. Um, uh, born and raised uh, in on the west coast of the South Island, born in Greymouth. Shifted to Westport when I was five. Um, well, the old man was a cop. In Westport for many years, uh, 30 odd years all up, including Westport and Christchurch and Greymouth and Dunedin for a spell. Um, I'm one of uh, seven kids, with two girls, five boys. Um, so uh, back then, not considered to be a huge family, but you know, at the bigger end. Now, I suppose it would be considered to be a bloody massive family. Um, went to Catholic primary school in Westport. Yep. St. Joseph's and St. Canis's. Did first year at Buller High, uh, third form at Buller High, then uh, moved over to Christchurch, did a year at boarding school at St. Bede's College, mm. and uh, the old man got a transfer in the police um, over to Christchurch, and so the family moved over to Christchurch um, in the fifth form. Uh, but my parents owned motels back in Westport and they put a manager in uh, for a year and that didn't go as well as they hoped. So my mother moved back to Westport to run the motels in my fifth form. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of us stayed in uh, Christchurch. Uh, and the old man, uh, being a policeman, was on shift work and, and spent a fair bit of time back in Westport, long weekends and holidays and in between shifts. Mm. So I suppose that had a bit of an influence, um, taught us a bit of independence, um, learned how to cook, enough yep. to survive anyway. Um, how old were you in the siblings? Were you like one of the oldest? Or? Uh, no, I'm right in the middle. So uh, an older sister and two older brothers, and a younger sister and two younger brothers. Oh, yeah. wow. And so uh, there's uh, seven kids, nine years apart. So... Um, yeah, not a lot of TV over on the coast. One, only one channel. Yeah, um, kids find it hard to believe now. Only one TV channel, and um, so yeah, we uh, put a bit of, I suppose, uh, put a bit of pressure on my parents uh, and and on us in a way that we had to uh, pull our weight and do our mm. bit, uh, which wasn't a bad thing. I mean, it certainly wasn't a tough. It was, you know, we, we were a pretty good family and. And, and, and um, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a problem. It was just what had to be done. Yeah. We, so, but, but I'd, we'd, we'd all go back as kids would, or, and teenagers would all go back to the, to Westport for school holidays, you know, so each term and, and over the summer. So yeah. that was, I suppose, even though we were schooling, high schooling in 
Christchurch we still considered, or I did, um, Westport to my, be my home, mm. hometown. Um, finished up at St. Bede's, uh, road at St. Bede's. I, got in, I started a year late because I only started there in the fourth form. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, the, the other kids that were rowing had already had a season under their belt, and I started with uh, three others in a Novi Four a year behind. Yeah. Uh, but over the next season, sort of caught up and um, made the St. Bede's Senior Eight in my last year. Mm. Uh, we were we were handy. We were we won the South Island Under Eighteen Champs, which nice. was good. Um, beat Christ College, who are uh, Christ College, are, um, you know, got a very good reputation. Yeah, strong history. Front, strong history in rowing. Um, and uh, but then when we went to Marty, we didn't, uh, we didn't actually make the final. We didn't perform that flash. Uh, had a couple of injuries, sickness, yada yada yada. A couple of our good guys pulled out during the year. They left school, got a job, and left school. Oh, no, yeah. And we were talking nineteen eighty six. So. You know, it was uh, not. It wasn't unusual for you know for kids to be from fifteen on to start pulling out of school and going into trades and mm. and, and other career paths. Uh, university wasn't the norm, so to speak. Yeah. So um, the eight that we had at Marty wasn't this wasn't as um, wasn't the same seating as we started the season or the year before. In fact, we had a, the coxswain of a couple of years earlier was sitting in the bow seat of that eight. Oh yeah. Um, um, and I was, I was sort of, I held my own in it, but I wasn't flash. If we were, um, if we were picking, I think I rode three seat from memory, which not to, not to dish on three seats in rowing crews, but it's not the most prestigious seat in the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there were plenty of guys. In fact, most of the crew at St. Bede's were probably um, making the boat go a bit faster than I was. Uh, but I rode. I liked rowing. It, it was a tough sport. Um, but mostly it kept me fit for rugby. Yeah, and um, I'm, I was in the first fifteen at school and and liked my rugby. Um, what position did you play? Uh, Lucy, number eight and blindside mostly. Oh, nice. Mm. So then, um, I was actually keen to leave school. Uh, I was keen to leave school at the end of fifth form, but past fifth form, school cert back in the day, uh, and the old man convinced me. Or I don't think there was too much convincing. I think he. He uh, first option was pers- to persuade me. Second option was just to tell me you're going back to school. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at, at the end of the sixth form, I uh, I worked on my uncle's uh, dairy farm, milking cows, and was pretty keen not to go back and do seventh form. I sort of thought I considered seventh form a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. I was keen to go and do uh, either be a builder, a chippy, or uh, maybe a draftsman. I was keen on my tech drawing. Mm. Uh, and and um, but I got uh, I passed UE or I got UE accredited back in the day, so um, and, and did all right, and so got persuaded again, go back to seventh form, carry on with school. What subjects did you did then? Like so, because there you kind of get a bit more freedom in what you choose. Was there any direction that you pushed so you could do the draftsman stuff and the tradie? No, there were, to be fair, there wasn't a hell of a lot of freedom. You did uh, there was. Um, the standards. The, uh, I I did uh, English, um, sciences, maths, uh, and the sixth form. I did tech 
tech drawing, but yep. not in the seventh form because it, it didn't. There was no, I don't know what they call it now. They call it uh, digital di- di- digital design or 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 something now. But um, I did ag science in the fourth form, uh, but then just general science fifth form, sixth form. I think I split it out to physics. Uh, didn't do. I picked up chemistry in the seventh form. Uh, because I'd have decided by the time I got halfway through or well, partway into synth form, I was pretty set to go and do an engineering degree. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I had considered uh, either engineering or architecture. Um, and uh, and I suppose engineering got the nod a little bit because it was there in Christchurch and architecture was, uh, I needed to move up to Auckland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so um, I considered engineering to be less of two difficult degrees, um, needed to get an A bursary to get in to engineering school as a prerequisite. Uh, you needed 300 points, 300 marks for an A bursary. I got 301, uh, 51 in English, which I was pretty happy with. Um, English is not my best subject. I, uh, I'm a terrible reader and speller. Yeah. In fact, I can't spell to save myself. Um, <laughs> literally, I'm... The the, the 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 seventh form English teacher uh, took my essays near the end of the year and said, listen, you're trying hard and you seem to know your stuff. You've read the books and the plays and the stuff, but geez, you can't, uh, you can't write for shit. And, uh, and, and add on that, I'm, you know, I've got to interpret every second word that you're writing because I don't know what, you, what the spelling is. I sort of, you know, over a year I've learnt what you mean, but um, it's going to be tough. So she got me to write out three or four essays and she proofread them and, and tweaked them and, and helped me, coach me through them. Yeah. Mostly with spelling. And then we designed, or she helped design, she mostly designed an opening, two or three opening paragraphs for each essay. So I think there, was, there might have been a, a novel question, a, a Shakespeare question, a film question, you know, the standard. And she said, just write this essay just like it is, except depending on what the question is, change your opening paragraph. Mm, yeah, yeah. And if it's plot, here's your plot opening paragraph. If it's theme, here's your theme. If it's character, here's your character. And then just write the rest. Don't change it. You won't score flash. You're not going to score flash anyway. But do this and you'll, you'll demonstrate to the marker. You've read the book. You've understood it. And... You, you could scrape through. And I did. Uh, 51. So <laughs> who knows? I might have scored 40 something in the exam and that got uh, scaled up back in the day. But uh, <laughs> that was all right. So that got me into engineering school. Um, I convinced not to go farming or carpeting or, uh, or, or um, drafting. The old, man's, the old man's point of view was when I wanted to be a chippy, he says, well, be a. Be a be a draftsman or be a QS or be you know and, and have chippies work for you. Yeah. And then when I got through sixth form, he said, oh, "I'll be an engineer and architect and have draftsmen working for you." Um. Funny when I got through engineering, he didn't say anything. So I, I suppose he was yet to be defined as to how I'm going to get a bunch of engineers working for me. I suppose I have now, actually, to be fair. <laughs> um. So I got through an engineering degree. It was hard work. Um, I um, ground my way through, uh, leaned on a few bloody uh, classmates for a bit of assistance, teamwork in the uh, 
for a few assignments. That was at Canterbury, yeah. 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 Nice. Um, it was just a lot of volume of work. Um, some of it was technically pretty tough, but really it was just a lot of volume. Did you do your um, rowing through then at uni? No, I didn't. I quit rowing at the end of high school. Um, I quit all sport, actually. I took up the sport of drinking. <laughs> um, I got pretty good at it, to be fair. Yeah. Went from uh, went from eighty something kgs to uh, all bloody near one hundred and twenty kgs in about three years. That's an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was um, not not one that you want to bloody put in your CV, but uh, yeah. So um, uh, I mean, it was it was hard work, but I a lot of time sitting on your ass studying, not a lot of physical activity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Drinking a bit too much, eating a bit too much, not doing enough bloody exercise, and um, and so I had a good mate, uh, Scott Brownlee, who uh, who had been at high school, a mate of mine at high school, and rode with him at high school, and uh, and he we were doing the civil engineering degree together, yeah, and he was a good rower, and he'd rode right through, mm. and uh, he was at the Avon Rowing Club, and um, I still kicked around with him. Obviously, he was in the civil engineering class, so we were good mates. And I thought, hey, what a what a good way to just jump back into a bit of sporting activity. It's um, it's during the summer break. Uh, I was um, it was my uh, the end of my third year at university, beginning the start of the fourth year. Yep. Uh, so I was working in Christchurch um, instead of over on the coast because I had to get um, work experience with a civil engineering consultancy as part of my um, practical experience to graduate. Yep. And so I thought I'll take up rowing again. I'll get back into it. Um, in fact, there was um, there was a New Zealand uh, New Zealand team did a bit of a tour around the country in '89, raising funds for their '89 World Cup campaign. Was, and, and and back then, rowing was very much an amateur sport, um, self-funded by the, the the athletes and the and clubs and fundraising. Yeah. And a bloke, uh, Dudley Story, who's um, who's uh, one of the New Zealand uh, greats of of, of rowing, uh, from uh, you know, Olympic gold medalist through to um, great club man. Uh, he was taking the the team of them around the country, doing stops off at pubs and charities, and um, they were doing UG competitions, display UG competitions, mm, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. raffles and 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 stuff around based around that. And getting local clubs involved, and I went along uh, to one in Christchurch. It uh, used to be called Woodpeckers. I don't know where it is, what what it's called now, but uh, Woodpeckers were were a tavern that supported rowing. And the New Zealand team was there, and I went along with my mate Scott, and that got me got me thinking about getting back into rowing. Um, yeah, and met a couple of uh, the real characters of the time um, of of the New Zealand team, Chris White and a couple of other guys. Who um you know, I'd seen on TV and, and, mm. and watched at nationals and, and in New Zealand teams and and met them uh, in the flesh and thought that was pretty cool. So uh, that summer I lined up for Avon, went um, went and joined the Avon Rowing Club, uh, got in the under twenty three club crew. Uh, the premiers of the top crew, the under twenty three was the sort of like the, the next level down. For that then, that's pretty epic change from not doing rowing for three years, suddenly jumping in. Was that hard work to just do it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was, yeah, it was hard work. Uh, it was a lot of training. Um, by the middle of the season, I'd 
I'd drop down to 90 odd, 91, 92 kgs. Mm. So that's um, 30 kg loss. That's yeah, almost yeah, 25 plus. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, but the, uh, probably to be fair, that first twenty kgs was pretty available to lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it wasn't contributing much, um, and it and it, it is regular. It's six day a week training. It's a couple of hours a day uh, gym work on top of that. So it's 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 a busy sport. Even at club level, it's a pretty committed mm. sport. Um, it wasn't. I wasn't doing anything flash. I was just doing what everybody else was doing. That was the norm. Um, mm. And so, and I suppose, I, although I had got into pretty bad shape, I probably didn't realise how bad, you know, how, how hopeless I was until I did get back into it. And then when I got back into it, I realised that's what I needed to do. So I needed to get off my bloody fat ass and do something. Yeah. Um, and, and Rowan afforded me the opportunity to do that. Um, and there the were a good bunch of blokes, and um, it, was, it was mostly blokes at the Avon Rowan Club. Um, in fact, I don't think we had any woman. We had a couple of woman cocks, and, and that was no woman crews as such. Uh, they rode at um, Union and Canterbury next door. Mm. And um, it, it got me going, So, uh, and, and I'm sure it probably helped me in my last year at university because uh, you know, I got pretty unfit in a, in a unfit mind, or an unfit body is not f- good for, for your mind. Mm. I think you certainly need to keep on, keep a bit of fitness for your mental agility. So um, sat there at the end of the season, we did all right. I think we got, I can't remember exactly where we got. We didn't win nationals. Uh, Waikato beat us, uh, which was going to be a bit of a theme for the next few years. Um, I think we might have got third or fourth at nationals. Mm. Um, And my target was, I I thought, shit, in the next couple of two or three years, I could work my way into the Avon Premier crew. Um, and I dreamed a little bit. I thought I, I remember thinking, yeah, maybe one day a New Zealand crew, maybe if uh, if they pick a couple of, if they pick a four or two and 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 have some leftovers jumping an eight, I might be lucky. Mm. Uh, but really, my focus was just to keep fit, have a bit of fun, and um, and work towards getting into the Avon crew. Which um, so at the end of the unit, at the end of the next year of university, I passed passed everything, uh, and so I got my degree. And got into the Avon Premier Crew that year, the next season. So that was um, 1990, 91, mm. uh, 90, for 91 Nationals in March. And that's an interesting thing, actually, because you, you were saying before with the engineering degree, it's a fair bit of work. And it's known to be like it's not exactly the easiest degree to do. And you were doing all this rowing thing, training six days a week. Did you find the, tra- um, so the time management easy? To, I mean, the, the training during the, the, the engineering by November – um, you know, only off memory, but by no- November, the the school year, the the oh, university year had so finished. made it easier. Uh, September, October was the start of the rowing season, um, and so the actual training as a crew didn't overlap with the university year by much at all. Oh, that's cool. Um, but but it did mean you could, you could, you had to turn up at a reasonable level of fitness. So it did mean mm. three or three or four mornings a week doing gym work or, or three or four days a week doing you know, weight training and core and uh, four or five, five or six days a week um, going for a run, really. I did mm. a lot of running back then to and it helped, initially helped lose weight, then through the next winter helped keep the weight off. 
and running's um I mean running's hard on the body and 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 as a fifty year old now or fifty thirty over fifty now, I probably wouldn't recommend it <coughs> um, too much because it is hard on the body. But as a young fella, it was great for basic fitness. You go for an hour's run, you know, go and run. 12, 13, 14 Ks, and um, you know, it's you, you can't help but get fit and stay fit. Mm. And so I did, you know, weight training and running, uh, and um, and that was the that was the guts through the winter, which on my own, so I could fit it around. Yeah, it was. It did mean getting off your ass. Uh, it was. E- it's easy to sit and say, "I'll I'll do that tomorrow." And tomorrow never comes, of mm. course. And because um, before in the degree. You hadn't, right? So was it just the fact that you'd committed to the team? You're like, okay, now I'm doing this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, very much. There was a there was a D day. You had to turn up to begin in the season. You had to turn up a bit fit, and uh, and if you didn't, you'd get caught out. And whereas the other years, I didn't have to turn up to anything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so I didn't. Um, so yes, yeah, certainly, I think from a fitness point of view, or from any point of view, having a ha- having a goal. But then putting deadlines in to your goal and making yourself accountable mm. uh, is is hugely important. Mm. And and when you're leading the team, the same. If you're leading the team, uh, understanding your purpose, setting goals, targets, uh, and putting deadlines, putting t- uh, time limits on those, so that you're you're continually checking are you mm. making progress or not is important. And you're actually checked with the rowing, like you, you jump in the first day back. You have to. You find out pretty quick. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you do. And we used to row the the pairs, fours and eights. So you get in a pair, and if you weren't uh, or a four, you know, an eight, it wasn't maybe so obvious as to what you were contributing. But certainly, by the time you get down into a four and a pair, uh, it's very obvious what you're contributing. Um, and and uh, at Avon Round Club, running was a big thing, also for extra fitness because uh, the rowing on the Avon wasn't the um, wasn't the oh, it wasn't bad water, but it wasn't as good a water as you can get in other places. And so we used to do around the bridges runs, you know, often most nights. It was pretty standard. Mm-hmm. I think for maybe four or five k run. And um, I mean, runner uh, rowers aren't known for their bloody running um, prowess, but you you do it a bit like biking. You and running, you do it enough, you get pretty handy at it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So you finished your degree then, and um, th- did you do anything for work to keep you busy as well as the rowing was quite, now that it becomes something important? Uh, so through that <coughs> that summer, I worked um, on a couple of building sites uh, and, uh, and did, um, I'd, done my, uh, I'd done my practical work um, and just through a few contacts, I, I did a bit of labouring work and that uh, gave me time. That meant I could knock off at five thirty and get to rowing by six, and and which was good. Um, I had enrolled by the end of the season. Season ends in March. Uh, we end of February actually. Um, I'd enrolled back into university. I was going to go and do my masters in engineering. Oh, okay. And to be fair, I'd, I did that because I hadn't. Uh, I hadn't got a job. As a uh, as a as an engineer, I hadn't gone and got a a, a cadet or a graduate job anywhere. Uh, jobs are pretty tough, to be fair. In 1990, 91, uh, the, the eighty seven crash was mm. very tough on the construction industry. 
Um, it was a it was a sheer market crash, but it was also a, a big impact on building and in, on that particular um, economic event, the country was still very much feeling it in, into the nineties, you know, 90, yeah. 91, 92, 93. In fact, from memory, I think the the, the bloody whole of the nineties were a grind from a, a business perspective, mm. and jobs jobs were hard to get. You you grabbed what you could get. Uh, there wasn't really, uh, certainly not like today in the engineering where graduates have, have multiple offers and they have their pick of where they want to go. Um, I don't know if it's true, but I, I hang on to a statistic that I heard back then that 75% of the engineering graduates from University of Waikato, uh, sorry, University of Canterbury, ended up over in um, the UK working within a couple of years Man. because that's where the jobs were. Um, so... My intention was to go back and do a master's. I wasn't breaking my neck to go and do a master's, but yep. it was um it seemed to make sense compared to bloody labouring. Um and you know, so it was gonna help my chances of getting a professional job at some stage. Uh but I got a trial, I got a New Zealand trial at the end of nationals. I got named in the New Zealand um trials for the for the elite team. Did that surprise you? Uh, yes and no, yeah, I had one of the selectors, one of the uh, three national selectors was actually from Avon Rowan Club, uh, and a couple of us, me and my mate Scott, got a trial, and, and he, he did, uh, late in the season, had tapped us on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, the selectors are looking at you guys, you're mm. performing okay, and, and um, knuckle down and bloody really, re- really bloody give it heaps because you, there's an outside chance for you, and so... Given that, I wasn't completely surprised by getting the trial, but I thought, shit, you know, this is great. I'll go along for a trial and it'll be a good experience and I'll get to bloody row with some really, really good bloody athletes. Mm. And um, thought that it would be something that we could build on over the years. Yeah. Uh, but actually ended up getting into the New Zealand 8 um, to go to the World Champs in Vienna. And um, actually, the, uh, that bloke I mentioned, Chris White, who had been there in '89 at that mm. um, fundraiser, he was in that eight. So you oh, know, cool. him, uh, guy um, Ian Wright, Campbell Clank Green, a couple of other guys who were pretty big names in New Zealand rowing. Uh, it was a very cool thing to be sitting in the boat rowing with him. Uh, got selected in three seat again, my favourite seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And I remember in a, uh, I remember the Christchurch Press uh, interviewing us um, and saying, "Hey, you're in three seat. You're pretty happy about that." And I don't know whether they knew anything about rowing at all, and I don't know if they're taking the piss. Unlikely, they're probably, you know, just passing comment. Yeah, yeah. And I remember saying to them, "Listen, mate, I'd be, I'd jump into the coxswain seat if that got me a spot at World Champs. It wouldn't worry me." Mm. And that was, that was pretty much. The case, I was very happy to be in the crew and um, keen to bloody give it heaps, but pretty surprised to get mm. into the crew. So we, um, so he, so I had to can. Uh, I, I actually went to about a week of lectures for the masters and then had to can it, which was a relief. Because uh, to be fair, I think from an academic point of view, the masters was might have been a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Mm. Um, and shifted up to the Waikato and um, trained at uh, out of Hamilton, out of Carapero for the winter. And then uh, we had a nine-week tour over a 
over in Europe, um, based out of um, Sarnen in um, Switzerland, mm. and trained there. Uh, had a coach, um, Duncan Holland, done the New Zealand part of it, and there was a guy, Harry Mann, who was a, one of New Zealand's uh, great coaches, I suppose it would be fair to say. Uh, coach New Zealand men's eight world champs in uh, 92, 93, and, and they got fourth at the Olympics in 94. Ah, uh, sorry, 83, 82, 83, 84, and had coached around the in the world stage mm. after that, uh, and was coaching. He was head coach of the Swiss team at the moment at that time, but had taken on our crew, so we went over and trained with him in Switzerland um, for um, eight nine weeks all up. Had three or four weeks at altitude training in San Moritz. Uh, but it, to be fair, it was uh, it was uh, that campaign. The European part of that campaign was pretty shit. Uh, we were we rode at uh, Lucerne uh, within a few days of arriving into Europe and got fifth or sixth at Lucerne, which is the last World Cup regatta before World Champs. And so all the uh, big guns yeah. are there. It's a dummy run, and we were in the hunt, fresh off the plane from New Zealand, out out in the New Zealand winter, thinking shit, this is not too bad. You know, we're, we're over a five and a half minute bloody race, we were four or five seconds behind the winners, mm. straight off the plane. Um, eight weeks later, at World Champs, we we got sixth, uh, made the final just, and, and got sixth, uh, still five seconds behind the winners. Mm. Um, and that was pretty disappointing um, for everybody. Uh, but it was a tough campaign, and 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 um. Personally, I found it pretty tough under a new coach, and and, and had Harry and, and for another few years. I had him in '94, had him in '95, um, and uh, yeah, not he was never my cup of tea. Mm. Uh, a great coach, but not a great coach for me. Why was that? Ah. Uh, Hard to really hard to say. I mean, he communicated in a um, in his own style, which I didn't really get. Uh, and I know a few of the quite a few of the other rowers didn't really get it. Mm. Uh, but some of the rowers really did. He coached at Waikato Club for many years, and so uh, a couple of the older rowers did have quite extensive experience with him, and yeah. probably understood him better than we did. Mm. Um. Also, he on that on that particular campaign, ninety one campaign, he was head coach of Switzerland and, and coaching us, and he's he it was I think in hindsight too much for one bloke to, to cover. Yes, yeah, busy, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a big job and um, probably too much. Um, and we experimented with altitude training uh, that that wasn't flash. Um, there, ah, the crew, the the, the New Zealand. New Zealand at the time were experimenting with changing their four-year plan every year. Um, Hard with, to build that consistency and momentum. Yeah, it was. Um, in in eighty in, in eighty-eight, they sent a Cox four. In eighty-nine, they sent a Coxless four, uh, and a pair. Uh, no, a Cox was just a Coxless four. In in nineteen ninety, they sent a four, a pair, and an under twenty-three-eight. To Worlds because Worlds were in Barrington and Tasmania. In ninety uh, in ninety one they canned all of those crews and just sent an eight and a pair, but they were you know the, the 
they weren't the same eight, but they were all those crews were still made up of the same ten to twelve people. Mm. Uh, we got sixth in in ninety one in the eight. They can that. Olympics in 92 sent a coxed four and a coxless four. Uh, we got sixth in Barcelona uh, at the Olympics. They canned that. 93, they just sent a pair. 94, they canned that and sent a cox four and a cox pair. But mm. dif- different. So that constant change in the team's hard to build that continuity. Yeah. yeah. So every year, right through to 96, every year they changed it. And mm. uh, they'd reset their pretty you know their, their four-year plan the, the, the rowing is an olympic sport the olympics the pinnacle mm. so you you from a, a, a the national team perspective you you focus around a four-year olympic cycle yeah should be building towards it yep yep and um you know there are there are crews out there that uh their first year together might have got you know first in the b final uh but then built from there or, or fifth or sixth like we did and uh, built from there, uh, but um, they get another crack, and four or five seconds, five or six seconds is not that far behind. I mean, it it is. It feels a long way behind when you when you row it and get mm. beaten by a couple of lengths. But um, in reality, if you, you know, another twelve months together as a crew, you'd get a lot closer. Mm. But we never stayed together as a crew. Because you move to the next type of yeah. not next type of boat and next change in seating arrangement. They go from a coxless four to a cox four and two different people in it. Mm. Those two guys that weren't in it would be in one of the other boats, but not in your boat. And so you're starting out every year brand new combinations, a new boat. You know, ninety one I rode the eight. Ninety four I was in a coxed four. Ninety five I was in a coxless pair. Ninety six I was back in the eight. Yeah. Um. So it changed every year. Uh, didn't work out. Mm. Mm. Um, end of '92 Olympics. I um, up until then, from a work perspective, I did whatever I could get my hands on. Yep. When I went to the Waikato for training in '91 and '92, I worked um, for a local boat builder, um, sanding boats and, and working as a labourer in his boat building factory. Um, mm. This is up in Hamilton now. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, got paid out. At, it was out at um, Cambridge, uh, and, and and often got paid in petrol vouchers and grocery vouchers. Um, down in Christchurch, I worked. I cut concrete for uh, a summer with Canterbury Concrete Cutting. Uh, did landscaping for one of my coach's uh, dads. He had his, a little landscaping buddy business and, and got us a job there. So really, just whatever we could fit in that mm. where uh, at the end of the season or the start of the winter campaign we could pack our bags and shift and go where we needed to for rowing mm. do the world champ campaign and then head back to Christchurch uh, at the, and at the end of 92 I got a job with Fulton Hogan um, which I hadn't considered at all when I did my engineering degree I thought I would graduate and uh, sit in the design uh, studio somewhere and design skyscrapers and dams and bridges for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, and I absolutely hadn't given any consideration whatsoever to to working for a construction company, mm. let, let alone a, a, a civil or you know horizontal infrastructure company like Fulton Hogan is. You know, roads, drainage, subdivisions, road maintenance, bridges. That didn't that absolutely didn't cross my mind. But um, a family friend 
was doing a bit of work with them and he had a couple of contacts in there and um, he uh, put a good word in for us and got us an opportunity. Uh, which led to a career in, in the civil construction industry, which, mm. yeah, as I had uh, up until the interview, I had no plans on doing that at all. Um, mm. So funny how things really pan out, but yeah, I, 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 that's where I've been for the last um, almost 30 years. Wow. Mm. So for jumping in to Fulton Hogan, what year was it? Because you would have been still rowing and... Yeah, I was. It was uh, 92. It was late. So I'd come back from the Barcelona Olympics. So it might have been September 92, something mm. like that. Yeah. Mm. Are we able to go into the Barcelona Olympics? Because I know there's a story there about how it was frustrating and understanding what happened there. Uh, yeah, uh, disappointing rather than frustrating. Mm. Um, yeah, we. So I made the, um, I suppose, the uh, what you'd term the priority boat uh, back then um, the heavyweight sweep or cruise were what New Zealand focused on as opposed to sculling yep and the 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 men's heavyweight coxless four was the priority boat for the men's team mm. um, and uh, and, and and the priority for the women's team were was the uh, women's heavyweight double. And from a medal perspective, the the men's heavyweight crews had won Olympic medals right back into the at every Olympics right back into the sixties. Um, uh, mm. So you know sixty eight seventy two. 76, uh, 80 was canned because of Moscow, but then 84, um, you know, 84, they won a gold medal in the, um, in the Cox was four and a bronze in the Cox four. So took a couple of medals. Mm. And so our, we were, our expectation wasn't to go to the Olympics just to compete. Our expectation was go there and, and, and win. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I never had the bloody, uh, I never had the, pleasure of winning a world championship or Olympic medal so I couldn't tell you what it feels like but I dare say if we had won a bronze I don't know whether that would have been you know whether that would have been a fantastic or whether that would have left a bloody a gap there also um, you know I know a bloke that has won a Olympic bronze and world champs gold medals and um, kept coming back for four or five Olympics chasing the, the gold mm. So, uh, yeah, we were pretty pissed, um, and at the end of it, very despondent, I think, and uh, found it bloody tough for the, those few days afterwards. Um, and and for years to come, I didn't watch the Olympic Games on TV until um, the next couple of Olympics I didn't watch. And in fact, um, ninety six I didn't watch at all, uh, and, and had mates rowing in it. 2000 I watched one rowing race that uh, had a mate rowing in it and um, but that was it for the Olympics mm. uh, just, just thinking about it pissed me off so um, I remember you saying no one seems to really get it when you were talking about it. you go like they can understand that it's frustrating but also like hey it's cool we made it to the Olympics you got in the final 
What part of that don't you feel people understand? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Olympics holds uh, a lot of prestige and, uh, and it's... 28 years ago now, so uh, to be fair, I have now got over it. I do now watch the Olympics, and it mm. doesn't bother me. Um, but for many, many years, people would say, oh, you've been to, you know, if, I, if, if people knew or, or come to the conversation, people would go, oh, that must have been marvellous, that must have been fantastic. And um, the first few times, or first many times, I, I, my reply was, no, it was a piss-off, um, actually, to be fair. And, yeah, people don't get it. Uh, and that's fair enough too, because um, they they sit there and think, oh shit, you, know, you made the Olympics, isn't that fantastic? And mm. the, and you made an Olympic final, isn't that even better? Um, and, and and I didn't, to be fair, unless uh, you know, the two or three people close to me probably got an explanation, but most people never did because it um, you know it would take a bit more bit more time than they were interested in to explain. Mm. But yeah, you go there with with expectations. Um, probably not too dissimilar to people that went to trials and didn't make the Olympic team. They went there with an expectation to make the Olympic team. They don't make the Olympic team. It, it pisses them off, and, and and something that significant it'll piss them off for a long time. Once you get in a team, or once you achieve your goal, once you achieve any any significant goal, uh, certainly for me, it's my habit is to reassess the goals, the targets, and set a new target mm. that's a bit more challenging and keep resetting until it and so you're always challenged and so making the team was never making the team was first step but it was never the step mm. and so making the team was was that was fantastic cool right now what's our job our job is to go over there and win and we didn't uh, and we were expected to and we expected to and uh and 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 and, and we didn't because we simply weren't fast enough on the day. And you know, 12 months out, you know, four years out, on that particular date, at that particular time, the buzz is going to go and you have to perform. And if you could have performed better the day before or the day after, well, nobody gives it because you know when the buzz is going to go and and that's when you have to perform. And we didn't... um, we didn't have a. Sh- we, I don't. To be fair, I don't remember much about the race. I didn't even straight after the race, except to know we were we were out of bloody legs. We were out of puff, and uh, five hundred meters to go, we were in the hunt, and everybody pissed off, and we 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 were already sprinting, and so um, you know we were only a, a second or two. We were in the middle of the field, five hundred to go, mm. but we didn't have the sprint, and you, you're not going to go and get that sprint just with another week or two's training but maybe with a year's training but who knows that's you know it's a hypothetical question but we, we just didn't perform where we where we needed to mm. how does this shape you being in a high professional sport in the olympics because i i'm sure especially the competitive nature it's real cool you learn a whole lot you learn what it's like to be around high performers who uh, sometimes you know like the um guy called chris you were saying before yep. like gold medalist it's pretty cool to be in that environment how has that come across to you now in business um i think i learned a lot about goal setting uh i learned that uh, i mean well, i well, i i didn't and and 
and don't consider myself to be um, a remarkable athlete at all. And in fact, there were there were guys at school that I rode with that were better athletes than me, mm. and um, I probably benefited from the the fact that uh, rowing, like a few other sports, swimming and a few other sports, has a, you know there's a higher attrition rate from school into club rowing, and and so there were better athletes than me around that quit the sport and never had a crack at the New Zealand scene. Um, but I suppose my one of my strengths is my work ethic, so I do knuckle down and, and do the work, do the mm-hmm. hard yards, and that, that got me through. And that made me realise that um, it actually doesn't take, it, it seemed to me one of the things, one of my observations was, I'm sitting there at, at World Champs or, or Olympics and, and with these, you know, the calibre of athlete that's, you know, Top in the top bracket in the world, and I suppose I was in that top bracket in the world myself. Mm. Um, and it seemed weird that a normal average person could be sitting there uh, just with a bit of extra work. Now, it didn't harm that I was six foot three and 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 uh, leaned down to bloody five percent body fat. I was still ninety something kgs, so uh, you know I wasn't a bloody I wasn't a hobbit, uh, but um, but yeah, it, 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 the it possibility open up the yeah it opened up the belief that hey if you want to excel at something well give it a crack mm. uh, you you don't it's dreams don't have to be just dreams um, certainly requires a plan and uh, and it certainly requires. You, you know you have to know your purpose you have to know where you want to be and why you want to be there so that you can then formulate a good plan the correct plan uh, and provide yourself with the motivation to do the work mm. so there's a what i i suppose what i learned was there's there's a formula to success and that is uh, understand your purpose ha- have a purpose to what you do Mm. Um, there's a book Simon Sinek is a, is a, you know promotes purpose you know is top priority is higher higher than anything else. Know your purpose. Mm. Start with the why. Start with the why. You know, know why. Ask yourself why. Um, and I think that's very important. Um, if you know, if you under, if you start with the how or the what. Then, 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 what is it that motivates you? You go. Um, if you want to be a lawyer, you go. Oh, why, you, you know, I'm gonna. Uh, I've got a daughter. My, uh, my oldest daughter is uh, year thirteen this year, finishing up mm-hmm. high school, and uh, looking at next year and looking at options. What am I going to do next year? And she's very keen to go to university. She wants to go down to Victoria University. Uh, pretty sure she wants to go to Victoria because it's not Hamilton. <laughs> um, but is unsure what she wants to do. And we've discussed, you know, options. And if you if you look at it and go, well, I want to be a lawyer. Ask why. Why do you want to be a lawyer? Oh, I don't know. It seems like a good idea because law is a good career. Oh, yeah, but why do you want to be a lawyer? Oh, you know, it just seemed like a good idea. I'll be a doctor. Oh, no, I don't want to be a doctor. Why not? Oh, I don't really know. 
Yeah, and so you can be persuaded off something. Mm. Now, if you can be persuaded off something, then you can persuade yourself off it halfway through when it's a grind, when you're really, when it's really tough. Mm. Uh, and but you go, no, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a particular type of lawyer. I want to be, um, you know, I want to be a defence lawyer, and I want to, and I want to defend the innocent, and I want to, you know, create a better world, and yada yada yada. And you go, okay, cool. Now you're starting to understand why you yep. want to be something. But even that then opens up questions, and you go, well, okay, what you what you really want is not to be a lawyer. What you really want is to defend justice and mm. make a better world, and 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 contribute. Is law the only way you can do that? Law's the how, not the actual. Law's why. the how, mm. not the why. And if you understand your why, then you can under, you can open up options for the how, and you can create a plan. But you can change the plan or amend the plan, tweak the plan, uh, because as you run through any plan, uh, you start to learn from executing the plan, and so you revamp the plan to a better plan, to a better version, to more uh, adequately accomplish the why um, and so having a having the vision having knowing what a, uh, inspires you and knowing what great looks like or what good looks like mm. uh, but not being afraid to 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 aspire to be great rather than good um, I think's very important yeah you know, the, uh, the, the 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 Collins's book good to great says that you know good is the enemy of great. Mm. Uh, and that people settle for good and pretty good and okay and not bad. Um, but I think you need to find what will then motivate you to push through. Uh, yeah, I made the crew. What's going to motivate me now to want to get uh, to get in the final? And now, now I'm looking like final material. What's going to motivate me to do a bit more and get to a medal? And now I've won a medal. Was it a gold medal? And now it's a gold medal. Can I do three in a row, sort of thing? Mm. Um, and and that and that that's a, in a sporting context, but you take that context into anything at all. Um, you know, as a, as a as a workmate, as a work colleague, as in a professional career, in a family environment, as just in, in clubs uh, and and community groups and and whatever it might be, mm. um, you can always be looking to get better. And do things better and smarter and more effectively and get better outcomes. Mm. Mm. Awesome. So if we move to, um, is it around 96, I believe, you decided you wouldn't go for New Zealand selection anymore? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, what drove I, that decision? Uh, I was probably just hitting my peak from, a, from an athlete's perspective. Mm. Um, I was mid-20s. 26, 27 years old, uh, but I I had come to the conclusion that um, the, no matter what I did, there was very little chance that a New Zealand crew within my um, available time span of being the next you know, four or five years, uh, that a New Zealand crew would win a medal. And mm. I'd been to world champs, rode, rode at world champs in finals, rode at an Olympics in a final. Uh, and to put my life on hold to go and repeat that uh, just didn't seem like uh, a, a good bloody decision. Mm. Uh, and so it was a pretty easy decision, really, to um, 
to call it quits on competing at uh, in the at the in the New Zealand or international level. And um, so I just rode club, rode for Waikato Club. Um, turned up ninety seven for the Waikato Club. Mm. Uh, me and a guy Ian Wright. Uh, he was um, he was been to uh, he'd been to three Olympics eighty eight. 92 and 96, he was a very good rower, and um, he was in the Waikato Rowing Club and an old buddy uh, stalwart of the Waikato Rowing Club. And him and I were going to row the pier in uh, 97 um, club season. And just before Christmas, he pulled the pin on it. He said, no, nah, this is not for me, and he, he quit. And, and so I chucked it that year. I didn't compete at Nationals in 97. Mm. And then the next year we had a, we we decided we'd have another crack, uh, but that year I said to him, "Listen, we're not going to quit. We're going to keep going." And uh, and we also rode in the in the Waikato Club eight, did a bit of training in the eight. Yeah. And um and he partway into the season again he he pulled the pin. He says, "No, nah, this is just a, it was just was for him. It was a bad idea." Mm. Um, but I kept rowing. I, I I still enjoyed the sport. I still enjoyed the camaraderie. I still enjoyed the competition and the challenge at a club level. And so um, the year before, uh, Waikato had won the, the eight, something like 20-odd years in a row. And the year before, they didn't actually, I don't actually think they fielded a Premier Eight in the competition. Mm. And so um, 98 Nationals, we, we I was part of the Waikato Eight. And um, in there um, with Rob Woodell uh, and and a couple of other guys, it was, it was most it was very much I think uh, myself and Rob had international experience. Um, Rob was still coming through as a young rower, hitting the straps, mm-hmm. uh, but he uh, an incredible athlete in his own right. And uh, the, the the bulk of the crew were good, hardened club men. And we picked up the we won the title we back beat Avon who were our, 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 you know, for many years with the with the competition awesome. the old club and um, yeah it was good it was a good feeling and so we, we I kept running through till two thousand in fact uh, every every season I thought now nah, this will be the last season and uh, we used to throw a, a party at the end of the season and I quit party. And uh, each season, I truly believe now nah, that'll probably be it. We'll, we'll have a party and celebrate the bloody the end. Excuse to bloody get on the booze, I suppose, <laughs> with our mates. Yeah. And I had about four of them, so 97, 98, 99, oh, 2000. And uh, finally, 2000, I did quit. And uh, probably mostly because um, 2000 was in June 2000 was when I started at Shicks. Mm. And uh, yeah, that was the end of rowing. I just, you know, I took, just couldn't afford the time. I was running on, I was running on um, experience and cunning. By then, I wasn't able to train like I used to, and um, you know, I was working ten, twelve, fourteen hour days. I'd have to skip work early to get to training by six o'clock at night. Um, yep. and, oh, yeah, and in that last season, I'd, um, uh, I, I was still at Fulton Hogan through to. 1999, and in fact, I quit Fulton Hogan over rowing. Uh, funny enough, they'd been very, very good. They were a very, very good company to work for, and they still are, I think, a marvellous company. Uh, probably the pick of all the big bloody civil infrastructure companies in New Zealand. 
uh, in my view, and um, they were very, very good to me. But we had a we I had an argument with the Waikato regional manager over annual leave for '99 nationals. Yeah, uh, I was running a project that was um, a pretty important project for the for Waikato at the time, um, and in um, my boss's opinion. I couldn't, he reckoned I couldn't afford to go to Nash, take a week off uh, away from the project. Uh, I believed I could. Mm. So I went to the regional manager to um, to to double check the decision and he uh, he backed his man. And um, so I bloody said, well, I'm, I'm going. And, um, and that was a tough decision, uh, but I'd, I'd priced that project. I'd run the project project was nearing completion uh i had 70 odd guys working for me on a on a remote site building um some big retainer walls and and bridging over some slips and and doing some roading work mm. and uh had pulled the team together and believed the team could handle me being away for a week and um and, and it did prove to be right i come back I was, uh and on contract and finished that project because i didn't want it to it still had six months to go i didn't want it to turn the shit on, yep. on on the company and have my name tagged to it, but that was the end of Fulton Hogan, uh, which was probably another big change because I saw myself sitting at Fulton Hogan for the next twenty years. Mm. Uh, had aspirations of bloody one day being a regional manager myself, mm. and, um, and and up until that point had no intention or desire to move on. So for Fulton Hogan, we've kind of. Um passed off really briefly on what you actually did there at the start in that rise because you're saying you're running projects by then was that something you started in or how did you build up to that role uh, so i started 92 spent almost 12 months just as a cadet out in the field uh, with my boots and day glow on as part of the working crews spent uh, a summer in with the uh, asphalt crews a uh, couple of months out with the road maintenance crews uh couple of months with um, subdivision construction crews and, and, a, and a few months with a drainage crew. Mm. And that gave me a very good grounding. That was the, the, the typical Fulton Hogan way of, uh, of of bringing in graduates into the, the cadet program. And then uh, and then you went out as a junior contracts manager um, under, under uh, senior managers and out into the field and run jobs. And uh, when, when I say run jobs, we run car parks and small roading jobs under the supervision of very capable foremen who uh, we probably thought we were running the job but actually the foremen were almost certainly running the job and just keeping an eye on us um, and we were doing their paperwork um, and and so you just gain experience um, I uh, I put in for a transfer from Canterbury, Fulton Hogan Christchurch to Fulton Hogan Waikato and uh, at the end of 94, mm. um, when I moved up in 94, that's when I shifted from Avon to the Waikato. Um, our Avon crew sort of disbanded a bit after um, four years of trying to crack through the Waikato club. Um, I decided if you couldn't beat them, let he join them, uh, yeah. which was a tough decision because it was, it was, in a way, it was concede and defeat. Um, but I, but, um, but that's the call I made and so joined the Waikato crew and moved to Fulton Hogan Waikato and when I moved there uh, the 
one of the department managers had left and gone off to a different company and so they had mm. a department manager job available and okay. so they, they threw that to me and um, that got me in as a department manager so I had a couple of crews that I was running of my own yep. and a couple of junior engineers mm. and um, after a couple of years got another department and uh, you know, it grew a little bit and so yeah just grew into the role I think it, and it wasn't anything special or extraordinary it was pretty standard that's, that's the way the Fulton Hogan run their management program, and um, and and I think you know a lot of construction companies, probably a lot of companies all over the place. You know, you come in as a junior, mm-hmm. you do your time, yeah, you gain your experience, and you you, you run through the ranks. Yep. Mm, yep. Awesome. And so I still had a I I stole a couple, two steps off. Uh, you know, they had the regional manager, and then we had our divisional managers, and then department managers. I was still a department manager, yeah. but I, well, I would like to have thought I was at the the better end of the department managers, and and probably next step was a was a divisional manager mm, cool. job, yeah, you know, not too far away. Uh, but that wasn't to be. I um, I resigned, uh, and. I mean that was a, it was probably a point of principle. It wasn't as I say. I I, I was well looked after by Fulton Hogan mm. and uh, and respected them as a company and still do respect them as a company. And 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 the and the, and the boss, the regional manager at the time, had a lot of respect for him and still have a lot of respect for him. Mm. Uh, it was a tough decision, but I'd made a commitment. I'd made a commitment to the company, and I'd made a commitment to my crew. Yeah. And if I didn't go to nationals, that was our crew, a big dent to our crew. Mm. They were going to have to bring somebody in that hadn't been training in the crew for the whole season. Mm. And that was going to affect our crew. It was then going to affect whatever crew that person came out of to go into our crew. So we don't carry reserves. And so I looked at it and went, well, who, who's out of step here? And not who do I need to be most loyal to, but who's out of step here? Uh, I knew my project better than anybody. Uh, to be fair... The senior manager uh, didn't <laughs> have a clue about the job, really, uh, in, in, in any regard. And so, you know, they read the monthly reports and come down and visited the site once a month. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that was the value they added, which wasn't, uh, you know, they they could have sent us a box of piss once a month. It would have been more value. And so it pissed me off a lot that they then come in and make that decision an uninformed decision that was out of step with reality and so my call was well Fulton Hogan as good a company as you've been you're the guys that are out of step mm, I don't believe yep. I'm out of step I've made my commitments uh, if I thought the job was in jeopardy if I was if me going away was going to put the job in jeopardy I would have pulled myself out of the crew mm. uh, because I would say absolutely work and, and and the livelihoods of people at work are more important than than sport. But I knew damn well it wasn't me buggering off for a week wasn't gonna wasn't gonna impact the job one little bit. Uh, that I had a good team on site that could handle the week that we would be well planned for the week. That what I was doing was planning the next month, two months, three months, uh, and that me disappearing for a week would almost go unnoticed. Mm, uh, yeah. So that's that's why I made that call. Um, but, it, uh, you know, it was probably a, a fantastic 
um, thing in hindsight because it opened up opportunities. Mm, change your career for sure. Mm. So I went and joined, I, uh, I, uh, after finishing that project, so after six months I got offered a job uh, with Arrow International Project Managers. And that was a bit different. That was they were they were mostly uh, they're a project management company, but mostly in the vertical build scene, construction, vertical construction. And so that was uh, I was there for twelve months in the Waikato doing that, and um, and then I got a phone call asking if I was in, interested in coming to manage uh, Shik. So yeah, we changed uh, the, the Shik, changed its name from LG and GH Shik to Shik Construction and Cartage in uh, October 99 when uh, Lindsay Shik, who created the company, sold it to his 2IC, uh, Peter Grinside. Mm. Um, and Peter was a, Peter was his, worked for Lindsay for four or five years, uh, was a was an engineer, had worked at Brian Perry Civil for many years, um, and I knew Peter and Lindsay reasonably well through Fulton Hogan and Arrow. And uh, very tragically, Peter uh, died of a heart attack uh, in in March 2000 mm. at the age of 46. Oh, man. And his wife, Barbara, um, hired me to, uh, or gave me an interview. I got an interview for uh, the job. Um, there were three or four people approached. Um and uh, I knew a couple of them. I knew one of them didn't didn't go for an interview. Uh, he was he was working for a uh, one of the larger, his regional manager, one of the larger civil construction companies at the time, and um, and didn't think it was worthwhile. And, and another ex Fulton Hogan guy went for it, and I went for it, and um, yeah, I landed the job. So mm. I started with uh, with Schick, uh, the Tuesday after Queen's birthday weekend. In 2000. 2000. So for that, where was Shik? Because it was started around 79, was it? And do you want to explain briefly the company where they were at the stage when you jumped in? So the, I've never actually asked Lindsay, but his accountant, uh, Guy Graham Wood, is, is still our accountant. So when we when um, when we come on board, we keep Graham as our accountant for, for the new company. Mm-hmm. And I asked him uh, when did Lindsay start, and, he, the, and his recollection was Lindsay started as an owner driver for Davies Transport in 1973. So he, he quit as a driver for them, and then went in as an owner driver. So bought his own truck, and then contracted yep. back to Davies Transport. Mm. And Davies Transport in its day was one of the uh, big, was a big player in the transport, cartage, <laughs> and construction industry in, in the Waikato. And um, and Lindsay grew up from there, and so when when he sold it to Peter and Barbara, uh, they employed seventeen guys. Yep, I had a couple of twelve ton diggers who were actually owned by the owner by the operators. They were owner operators, contracted permanently to Schick. Uh, had six trucks, six truck and trailers, four ton roller, and a loader, and a and a, a, a lady uh, doing the, the doing the bookwork, and a, a bloke in the workshop as a mechanic. Mm. So seventeen people all up, and 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 Doug the uh, was was the transport manager. Um, so yeah, I, when I come aboard, their their bread and butter work were house pads. They dug out house pads, domestic house yep. pads. So uh, sand pads, dug out the topsoil and and clay, and put in sa- sand and rock, uh, ready for the builder to come in and and do the do the floors. Mostly residential. Mostly residential. Probably ninety percent of our eighty. 
five, 90% of our work was residential house pads and, and a couple of times a year we'd get a commercial or industrial sort of car park, sand pad, building pad yep. that came with a bit of a car park on, on the side. Mm. Uh, and I'd come from a, I'd come from obviously Fulton Hogan background where roading, construction and, and, and drainage and subdivisions and, and asphalt and stuff were, were my background. Mm. Uh, and I knew uh, I knew Peter had aspirations. Uh, in fact, I um, I sat down with Lindsay before taking the job. I sat down with Lindsay Shook for for a morning, um, and he gave me a real good uh, rundown of his, his thoughts of where, where the world sat with regard to Shook's. Mm. And uh, and one of the things he said to me was that Peter's aspirations were one of the reasons his reasons for selling was that Peter bailed him up one day and said, "Hey, um, you know, I think Shook's." Could go a long way, and I think we should we should have a crack at some of these things that we're just providing digger or trucks to. We should be the head contractor, and we should you know have a crack. Mm. And Lindsay's response was that he agreed, but he just also agreed that probably he wasn't the guy to lead that charge. Wow! And that uh, and that Peter was. And, That's uh, pretty special to be able to even say that, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you, because uh, Lindsay uh, at the time wasn't an old man at all. He's, uh, he's still, he's, in fact, he's still kicking around now. Um, you know, twenty years later. Mm. Um, and uh, so no, it was it was a big call. It was uh, probably took a bit of a bloody wise head um, uh, to 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 recognise that. And so he sold to. Peter and Barbara, um, on the on the knowledge that Peter was going to bloody you know leap in and give it shit, um, and, and uh, of course he wasn't uh, he wasn't able to, but um, but I was able to come in and do it and, and instead, and so uh, the company had great potential, uh, had a really good bunch of people. Yeah, real good work ethic. Uh, Lindsay was a workaholic and, and a pretty strict taskmaster. Had installed great habits in, in the guys, and um, so we were in a fair bit of strife. We only had work. Well, I started on the Tuesday after Queen's birthday weekend. We had work through till Thursday. Oh wow! Uh, and, uh, and and a and a big mortgage, uh, and um, we we had a pretty steep. But he held a climb. And that's interesting. Let's zoom out for the listeners for a second here. Because if we go and look to the future or to where we are now today, and um, from 2015 to 2017, Shik won the top um, construction company in Waikato for the Supreme winner. And the next year, in um, 2018, you guys won National Category 1 winner. It's a fair bit different. And so that's what's really cool. Actually, let's go back there. You've you've got this massive hill to climb. How did you do it? Uh, the nature of our work, being building pads and, and coming in from domestic builders, did mean that we were we were pretty hand to mouth. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, if we only had work a week's worth of work now, we'd be in strife. But then we were we were certainly outside of our comfort zone. We were desperate, but we weren't. Uh, we weren't going down the gurgler. We just needed. Um, you know, Peter had died. Uh, a couple of guys had come in and offered help 
but also had day jobs of their own and so they were trying to price a bit of work and keep things sticking over and clients were were, were trying to be loyal but um, you know the work was running out so we needed to, to get in and, and immediately get off our ass and mm, do something. find work Yeah, uh, and the builders still kept ringing so we did still get those building pads coming in but we looked at it and um, after after a few months and they had a chance to sort of take a, a probably not a step back but just a bloody uh, open your eyes and take a breath we asked ourselves a question what are we in the business of uh, and the answer that we come to was that we were in the business of doing house pets mm. Now we said, well, is that the business we want to be in? And if it's the business we want to be in, how can we secure more house pads? How can we get a pipeline that's a bit more reliable? How can we do more of the house pads? Should we be doing the concrete foundations and and, and uh, setting up a, a, a concrete component and, and providing a bit more of a complete service to builders, mm. even fitting in the plumbing under the floors and, and stuff? And in that thought and, and in that debate and it was a debate buddy of of just me sitting in the bloody car really because there's no one else around the debate the point we came to the conclusion that hey actually we're not we shouldn't be in the business of house pads we should be in the business of diggers and trucks mm. and that diggers and trucks is our expertise and our specialty and that's what we do and at the moment we, we actually just apply them to house pads but we don't need to just apply them to house pads we could apply them to other areas of this civil construction. And so that's what we started to head towards. We got into roading. We started pricing as a subcontractor to Fulton Hogan and to Glovers and to uh, Downers and other roading contractors. We started pricing the earthworks and cartage to them. Mm. Uh, and we started pricing a bit of um, digger and truck work to, to, to other contractors around the place. That grew our expertise. Uh, we had a strategy that we 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 wanted to become a head contractor. Yeah. We needed to uh, walk before we could run. So we mm. went and become a subcontractor to others for a couple of years. Then opportunity came, and we we had a, a one of the key skill sets that we needed to be a head contractor in the roading game was we needed a greater operator to do pavement. Yeah. And we we come across a guy that was handy on a grader so we formed the grader crew and we made the decision right we're, we're going to go and price this work as a head contract to the councils now what was the first one? Oh, i couldn't tell you to be fair um it was almost certainly a bloody uh, either waikato district or hamlin city council job yep. uh the, the first significant job we won and it was within 12 months was mm. a job um norton road and, and for hamilton city council down by the sale yards um uh over in frankton uh, digging up and, and replacing that and um, so that was the first significant roading job we'd won and we did that and we did it okay uh, learnt a lot out of it learnt that our pavement guy probably wasn't the guy that we needed but yep. we'd made the commitment to it and uh, and actually and we knew this would be the case as soon as we started pricing as head contractor the, the ability to be a subcontractor to the others disappeared because we were in our opposition. Um, so we needed to, uh, once we played our cards, once we made that move, we needed to execute on it. 
Yeah. And so we kept pushing. We we come across a um, couple other guys that were a bit better, and we grew our capacity in that. When we we also at the same time started looking at drainage uh, to do more of the site works um, and bigger commercial industrial work. We needed drainage capacity. So um, one of our digger operators was actually a registered drain layer and he'd been sitting there in a digger for us for a year or so uh, and we didn't know. And uh, he put his hand up and said, hey, yeah, I could be laying these pipes if you want. So he, uh, he, he was the start of our first drainage crew. Mm. Oh, I think we now have in the Waikato six or seven, seven or eight drainage crews and three or four down in the South Island. So drainage is a big part of what we do now. Um, there wasn't any great plan to to double the size of the company and to win awards and 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 whatnot. We were we were just desperate for work and to keep work in front of us. And mm. uh, and and with any, no matter what size company you are, you it's a fine balance between having enough work, not enough work, and too much work. You have just enough. That's the sweet spot. Uh, but as you tend to work, you never you're not in control of when the clients are going to. Either you're going to win the work or or not, and if you do, when the client's going to want the job to be done. Mm. Council work's pretty predictable. There's you know you, you typically come in within ten days of winning the job. You're expected to make a start. Private work, you can your quotes can sit there for six months, twelve months. Mm. Think you've lost the job, or it's not going to go ahead, and then you get a phone call. Hey, we've finally got our building consent, or we've finally got our budget through, or or whatever. We want you to start next week. Yeah. So having a having that balance and having that pipeline of work and have, having a security of work probably drove us to grow the company because um, we were continually chasing work. There wasn't a job around that we wouldn't price. Um, probably the first significant job, big job we won, was the Waikato Stadium, the Earthworks for the Waikato Stadium. Yeah. I mean, it, And we won that. That was one. Peter Greenside was already working on in negotiations, and so when I come on board, we 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 we, we had an in there. Uh, with first it was with Fletcher's, and then it was with Hornlands, uh, who were owned by Fletcher's anyway, mm. and they were the construction company building the the stadium, and that was a million and a half dollars of of we tendered it for a million and a half dollars, I think it was, and at the time our turnover was about four and a half million bucks. So you know, it was it was a third of our annual work, and it was over the next twelve months. So that gave us real good bread and butter work mm. that we could use as a platform to launch into other projects. I remember doing that job, thinking that this is a once in a ten year, you know, to get a job this size. Mm. We'll be you know, if we can get one of these every ten years, that would be marvellous because you know we had no real, uh, you know, wasn't sitting there going. In five years' time, will be ten million. Then we'll be twenty, and then forty, and, and, and eighty mil turnover. And and these million dollar jobs will be you know, in ten years' time will be a dime a dozen. Um, but as we grew and as we responded to the growth and got more guys in, meant we need to price more work and keep feeding the beast. Mm. Uh, and and so it's been a bit like that. We we don't we didn't have we don't didn't have a strategy to grow for growth's sake, and we still don't have a strategy to grow just for growth's sake. Uh, we have a, should have a purpose, and its purpose is to benefit all those who contribute. And we're, we're quite specific with that. We have a group of, or 
five categories. We have our team, our SHIC team, as our number one that need to benefit from our activity. Our clients, number two. Our subbies and suppliers, number three. Uh, the community that we derive a profit in, number four. Mm. And our shareholders, number five. So in that order, in that yep. priority. And so we exist so that all those groups that contribute to our existence also share in the benefit of our existence. And if we are able to grow, because that secures that benefit to all who contribute and grows the pool of people who are benefiting because the pool of people contributing grow, then then that's not a bad thing. Yeah. And so, but if our growth meant we were losing that, then we would, we would, have to change what we're doing to get that back. Mm, it's an interesting thing of that growth. It seems natural with a project pipeline coming through. It can be quite difficult, I'm guessing, when you get a big project like the Waikato Stadium or something. And then after that, if there's not another big project there, it's like, oh, how do we fill this massive capacity? We just increase with that boom and bust nature. and. Yep. necessarily like how did you combat that and actually make sure you guys continue to be sustainable in your growth um so a good question and and, and not a simple answer a, a, mm. a complex buddy uh matrix of uh relation building relationships uh having a workforce that can uh, has got a multiple skills so you can switch um to adjust for what work you have got on, um, calling on uh, extra resource through your, your subbies. Mm. So choosing not to self-perform everything ourselves, but having a group, a tight group of subbies to come and do critical components where um, we're, we're part of a combined team. Um, very much keeping a, an outlook and an awareness of the market and the, and what's been tended and what's coming up in the pipeline. Mm. Um, getting in early whenever possible and, and targeting jobs that are in the pipeline and come up sort of six months, 12 months ahead. Mm. Uh, and holding relationships with, with key clients so that we know we get a little bit of preference uh, where where it's not um, the, the, the open to the entire market, dog-eat-dog tender. Uh, because the reality is uh, the cheapest price is not always best price uh, and often is not best price. And cheapest price at, the, at Tenderbox is often not the cheapest price mm. over the life of a project. And many clients realise that. And so many clients, uh, you know, 50% of our work is is some form of negotiation. Uh, in fact, probably to be fair, a higher, higher percentage than that. And, and when the economy's going well, mm. uh, so it is a it's a continual juggle. I don't think it's a it's the construction industry has its ways of dealing with it and its peculiar challenges. But I think any business has that you know that that yeah. challenge of keeping clients engaged, keeping the pipeline going, knowing what's going to feed the, uh, the the company. Mm. Yeah, you know, coming months, years. What were some other bigger projects that actually got the company? Because you've doubled in like quite consistently. Or was it year on year even at a point? Uh, well, we've been doubling. On average, we're doubling size every five years. So 20% growth uh, over the last 20 years. Now, and, and to be fair, it hasn't. It's not always linear. I went through 2008, 2009 mm. uh, GFC 
uh, we uh, we halved in size from a from a employee base went from a hundred down to fifty over a couple of year period. Mm. Um, but then then have grown back up. I think we're um, somewhere between 250, 300 people now. Wow. Don't know if there's any one project that has significantly contributed, uh, although we have had some good projects, um, but more just entering into different sectors. So when we entered into the subdivision market, uh, our, our traditional base, we went from house pads then we grew into being a subby, into roading construction and doing a bit more site works, bigger site works, so commercial industrial site works. Yep. And then we grew into being a head contractor in roading, and that so that was a growth window for us. Mm. Uh, and 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 we got a drainage capacity and got into subdivisions, so residential subdivisions mostly in the Waikato, and that was a that was another jump for us and, a, and an opportunity where we opened up that market. Uh, and then off the back of drainage, there we've got we've got the we've got into doing drainage and utilities for councils. So expanded from just not only just roading contracts for councils, but also drainage contracts for councils. Uh, and then off the back of roading for councils, we got into roading for NZTA. Yeah. So there's been uh, as we've grown from you know, four or five mil to. To, to push in 100 mil turnover, there's been barriers that we've had to push through and ceilings to push through and and, and, and platforms where we've levelled out and had to regather either our, uh, our uh, mostly in our management systems and our management expertise and our management structure, you know, applying a level of management where once upon a time I, um, myself and my see Mark Dorbin, the other shareholder of the company, we ran every job. We checked every timesheet. We checked every truck docket. We we dispatched uh, when our tra- when Doug, our transport manager, was away. We dispatched trucks ourselves over the RT. Through to then having um, splitting the jobs, so that he'd run a few, I'd run a few. Then uh, then a couple of other contract managers come in, so I wasn't running all jobs and didn't even have a finger in the pie of half the jobs. Mm. To then running. Managing managers, so I'm not running necessarily any jobs, but mm. running managers who are running jobs, and having a transition from guys out in the field that got their instructions directly from me to now they're not getting them from me. Uh, in fact, they, they they're not to get them from me and pulling myself away from the field, and then putting in divisional restructuring and putting in divisional managers, and then putting in a regional manager, and then going into Christchurch and creating the Christchurch branch was eight years odd ago, mm. and now Christchurch has become the head of the South Island. Now we've got a, a, a Nelson Marlborough branch and a Christchurch branch, and we're doing work in South Auckland and 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 Bay of Plenty and Coromandel. So there's been barriers to push through, and once once we set up the structure to handle that, then that gives us the capacity to then go and find the market mm. to fill that capacity. I think, yeah, you've touched on something that we have to jump into for sure is more of your leadership journey in that. Because what you've just said is pretty awesome to jump from 2000 to where you are now, managing, what is it, like almost 300 people or something, and also managing managers. That shift is big in anyone's, like from you leading it and you actually dispatching the trucks yourselves to actually going and working with the managers. Did you find you were natural at it? Did it naturally progress? Or how did you intentionally grow so you were as best as you could, like the best manager you could be in that position? 
Um, I'm tempted to say lucky, but probably not. Uh, certainly fortunate. I think I've had a uh, probably a, um, a a large um, proportion of good fortune come my way with with people that I've met and, and been instructed by and, and led by and. Uh, um, certainly, even from a you know, childhood having great parents and my old man was a, a stickler for being organised mm. and um and and having a plan and knowing what the options were and uh you know always thinking ahead. Um and so I've always gone into things, you know, one of my key um sort of sayings and, and themes is what's the plan? Who's got the plan? Who knows mm. what the plan is? Uh and and that's uh that's quite a complex question. That is who knows what your wires, who knows what the purpose is, right? And now, who knows what the strategy around achieving that is? What are the values? What are your core values or your morals or principles that you're employing um, around uh, who, that, that that sets the guidelines, sets the rules of the game? Was that your upbringing that made you do that? Because not all leaders think that way. To even include it, they go, What's the plan? They just want to know the necessary thing with the fact that you're going, What's the wire behind it and bigger than that? I probably have learnt. To articulate that, I probably knew it inherently through uh, the examples that I'd copied or followed mm. uh, in my earlier days, but I wouldn't have been able to articulate it and split it apart like that uh, and, and sort of analyse it like that if you asked me 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, over the last 10 years, I've, I've, done a, a, I've done a lot of reading. In fact, I don't, I don't read... Uh, I read poorly, and so I've done a lot of uh, audio books. I do now read books, but I probably went, I probably went twenty years without reading a book. Mm. Uh, but now I, I I do a lot of downloads for audio books, and I and I will read traditional books, uh, variety, a lot of management books, a lot of um, yeah, I've read a bit, quite a bit about Toyota and the Lean philosophy, um, sporting books. Um, I'm not so much into motivational speakers and shit like that, but um, people that have got a story, and um, you know, one I've just looked at lately is um, a couple of Navy SEALs uh, going on about the extreme ownership, um, and and one's called the extreme ownership, and one's called the dichotomy of leadership, and uh, the odd book about others, you know, there's there's a Legends, which is an all black book not written by an All Black, but written about the All Blacks. And you can pick up a lot of good pointers there mm. and it helps explain stuff that you know inherently, uh, but you you haven't uh, formally been taught it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I didn't do a management degree or diplomas and all like that. I have been on management courses, some of them good, some of them crap. But uh, but uh, in the certainly in the last five years, uh, being able to articulate it and explain it and and dissect it, pull it apart, the different components and the different skill sets, mm. and what is leadership versus uh, management versus governance uh, versus strategy, uh, what are the parts of strategy? How to how to build a framework? Uh, what is a framework? What's a what's a flow chart? What's a straw man sort of thing? Yeah, you know, tools. 
management tools that I probably would have benefited from learning many years ago, but they haven't until mm. recently. Um, that's helped articulate it to more of my managers. Mm. Uh, I think the pe- people you get around you are, is critical and the people you employ into into spots is critical. We've been very, very fortunate. We've we've got some fantastic people. In fact, not just some. We've got many fantastic people. And so um, the, the, the company doesn't rely on me. Uh, I could get run over by a bloody truck tomorrow. Um, and, you know, that have a funeral and shout some beers and let it get on with it the next day. Mm. So I think knowing uh, knowing that good people are critically important, knowing that it's not all about you. Um, in fact, it's not about you at all. It's about the purpose and what is the purpose. Our purpose is benefit to all who contribute. I'm one of those, mm. many. And so building, uh, you know, one of the key roles of a leader is to build other leaders. Mm. Uh, one of my key philosophies for myself personally is to make myself redundant. So I think probably growth has come out of that because uh, I've, I've continually tried to make myself redundant and every time I get close to making myself redundant, it just opens up new opportunities for me to go and fill my time with. Mm. Um, but I don't have to get drawn back into the battle that I've just left because we've got people often better than me in there fighting that battle. Awesome. And so growth has evolved out of that and developed off off, off that. Um, and so long as growth is contributing towards our purpose, that's fine. As I said earlier, if growth uh, starts to be a hindrance to our purpose, then we'd, we'd have to check the growth for a while until we get our house in order. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like that philosophy as well. And I'd like to jump into actually that leadership development part of it for a bit here because we've got young professionals listening. We've got those uni students or maybe the people they have just started in the workforce. They're all excited and there's a lot of pressure or whatever maybe in their heads to just go and jump up and do great things or anything and be a leader. Where do you start? Um... Well, I suppose I mean the, the the purpose behind the podcast is to give a bit of guidance to young, young aspiring people. Mm. Uh, and it's certainly not for me to rabbit on for an hour about my life, um, but I suppose by rabbiting on for a, a bit, it gives you a bit of context. And you'll if you if you go back in the podcast a bit, you'll heard me say that hey, there was a few key moments where it changed. You know, getting into uh, n- not leaving school. At, at the end of the sixth form and going farming, but going back to school and doing doing seventh form and going and doing my engineering. Um, mm. Getting a job at Fulton Hogan was completely random. It wasn't designed at all. Um, yeah. uh, getting a job at Shooks was completely random. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I got selected, but it wasn't orchestrated. It wasn't part of the big plan. Quitting Fulton Hogan, so such that, uh, had had I not quit Fulton Hogan, maybe I would have been like one of the one of the other guys who was offered an interview. Uh, said no, I'm actually in a pretty good space now. I'd rather stay where I am. Mm. So I think you can be in danger of overthinking it. I, I think life's a journey. Uh, the career component of it's certainly a journey. 
family component of it, friends and and and, and relationships as a journey. Um, the destination, who knows where the destination is. Um, but if you're not enjoying the journey or you're not getting fulfilment out of the journey, then you know you, that, that's something you need to look at. But life's not all about happiness uh, either. I don't think it's for me. It's more about um, contentment. Mm. There are times uh, I've probably learnt more from my stuff ups than my successes. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you were to ask me, do I have any regrets? The answer is absolutely, categorically, no. I don't have any regrets. Do I have any major stuff ups? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but for me to say that I have regrets would If I had a if I had a bloody uh, if I had a magic wand and could go back and change significant um, um, stuff ups in my life, would mm. I? Um, no, I wouldn't because I'm very happy with where I am now. A fantastic wife, fantastic kids, uh, yeah, family, um, part of a great company, good good career, and those battles and those misfortunes. Um, I mean, I haven't had any. Uh, my parents have died over the last couple of years, but that would be the you know the, really the, the the closest people to me that um, that have died, and, and they were my mother was over eighty, and the old man was uh, pushing eighty, so you know they had a reasonable bloody innings. Uh, so I haven't been hit with anything real real tragedies where mm. um, I'm sure you know, there are people out there with real tragedies where they would if they had a magic wand they'd go and change it, and it's and it's easy for me to say I wouldn't, but. You know, I'd sort of premise that with saying I haven't had any real tragedies in my mm. life. But um, but where would you start? I, I think start by having some big-ass goals, big-ass big desires. Uh, don't colour them in with perfect shapes and colours and, and you know, keep them a bit fuzzy. Mm. Uh, um, because things change and be, be prepared to change and adapt. Know your have, know your values, your principles. Mm. Uh, don't change them. Uh, they're not up for. They shouldn't be up for debate. Um, because there's lots of temptations out there, and you can swing in the breeze a bit. Um, and your plan should always be up for evaluation as to how you're going to achieve what you want to achieve. But your the rules of the game shouldn't be up for debate. Mm. Um, and then, and then have a crack. Uh, the Toyota or, or and the Lean philosophy has a uh, has a mechanism, has a saying, has a, has a, one of the tools of the Lean box is uh, is PDCA, Plan, Do, Check, Act, and it's a way of problem solving. It's part of the problem solving mechanism, where they where you set a plan, you do it, you then review it, check it, see how it went, evaluate it. And then act or take into the account what you've learnt mm. and go again, and go again and go again and go again, and knowing that the exact pathway to wherever you're heading is unknown, but you know your true north, you know your purpose, you know ultimately where you want to be. You just don't know the exact pathway. Now you can sit on your ass and plan 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 forever, and and finally come up with what you think is an exact plan to get to where you want to be and jump in the car and drive bloody two kilometres down the road in your on your plan and something pops up that stuffs your plan and so 
actually all that time sitting there planning forever was wasted. Mm. Uh, similarly, you don't want to jump in and just start driving because you might be in going in a completely the opposite direction. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a balance. Have a plan. Know we ultimately where you want to get to. Give something the sniff test and go, yep, this, this feels about right. Mm. And have a crack. Be willing to take risks. Be willing to back yourself. I, I took on uh, the management of Schick uh, fairly young. I took on the ownership of Schick in, in 2003. So I bought the company out, outright in 2003. Um, so I was 34 years old. I didn't have any certainty and uh, believed and was very confident that we could succeed. But I ultimately knew that if it crashed and burnt, I was young enough to recover from it. Mm. So my concern for crashing and burning wasn't so much would how how would I go, but obviously if we crashed and burned, it would leave collateral damage. And we, you know, I'm I'm very comfortable with the fact that we've never not paid a, a bill and, and and haven't left anybody. We've never been broken. I haven't left anybody else a reason to go broke. Mm. But for for young people starting out, there are lifetime opportunities floating by every few months. Uh, you got to have your eyes open to see that what they are. Uh, you can't go chasing every bloody car, uh, but you do have to be in a position to jump on the odd one and mm. and see where it goes. Um, don't be afraid to ask and 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 question. But uh, the harder you work, the luckier you'll be. So there's there's no easy. I don't know of any easy way. You've got to get off your ass and do the hard work. Mm. And you do enough hard work, things start falling into place. Yeah, mm, it's that thing you just can't even plan perfectly. Eh? It's just more about seeing that opportunity. Yep. Any tips on actually how to recognise when to jump ship into that new opportunity? Because I know there can be that difficulty of going ah. Oh, here's what I thought it would be and here's what actually it is. And I'm sure you've had times like this with Schick where you're like, okay, this is where we're going to go. Then a project comes up and you're like, oh, we could probably have a crack at this. What are those things that you would decide to go, okay, we're actually going to commit and change the plan? We've got a, I suppose we're not too different than most contracting companies in that we're all, we're a bit optimistic and we always think, now, whenever extra work comes along, we're very rare that we'll ever say no. In fact, I don't know if we've ever said no to extra work. We'll find a way to fit it in. So, so accepting work hasn't never really been too much of a choice. Mm. You know, you'd, we just do and find a way. I suppose asking yourself, what is the worst case scenario? If it really hits the fan, what's the consequences going to be, and can I live with that? Mm. Uh, and what can I do to mitigate that risk? What skill sets have I got? What people do I know? Who else can I get in the on, on, in the team? What can I go and learn first? What could be a stepping stone towards this if this is if this seems like a really big step? Uh, can I go and do an intermediate step and come back to the step? Will will it still be available mm. or something similar be available? I mean, that's good the, actually. Looking all, for all of those things. There's no one. Uh, I don't think there's any. There's no one rule to follow or one one method to follow. Or, yep. But it's you've got to evaluate. You've got to keep your wits about you. You've got to be on your game. Mm. You've got to know what the consequences are. Um, 
people's personalities are different. You know, they're the optimists in the world. They're the, the people that um, always see the problem. They're the, the, the realists. They're the people that analyse the crap out of it. They're the big picture uh, creative people that, that, that leap in uh, and, uh, and and hope like hell they've got some detailed people behind them to, to actually fill the slots. Yep. I think I'm I'm probably fortunate. I tend to be a bit, a, a little bit more orientated towards big picture stuff. But through the discipline of rowing and the discipline of engineering, I I am comfortable in the grind and the detail. Mm. But I do think a bit more longer term and bigger picture. So that gives me good balance. But I make sure my team and the expertise that I've got available to me has got a good balance too. I don't try and get a whole bunch of clones that bloody look and think and act like me around the place. Mm. Um, we certainly haven't always. We we now have a you know we now have a very comfortable with where we are financially, and that affords us to sit a bit more in a relaxed position or a comfortable position and assess the future. But for many many years, for probably you know for certainly the first ten, probably the first fifteen years. We were for the first ten years. It was it was a battle to survive, and so we didn't think three, four years, five years ahead. Mm. We thought, pay this month's bills, pay the wages this week, have a month or two's work ahead of us, and uh, what will next summer look like? Well, who cares? Because we're going to get through this winter and in this summer first. As we've uh, put what we've earned back into the company and grown our equity and and lessened our debt and broadened our market um, exposure and, and uh, both market and, and geographic exposure our profit has become a bit more resilient and dependable uh, and we and we have learnt that we have we have actually handled some knocks. We've handled but recently COVID to date so far. It's not over yet, but the GFC uh, and and so we can handle um, adverse events as a company as a group. Mm. So we now have have a hundred year outlook, uh, and we're putting things in place to succeed us and succeed the you know, the next generations and our um our 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 purpose is benefit to all who contribute but our, our vision is for future generations so um and that's not just for my kids or grandkids that's for the next hundred years and I, I I expect that in seventy or fifty years whoever's whoever's in charge is is is, is thinking hundred years per yeah, it should be two or three hundred years. Now that's some big, pretty hairy ass aspirations, uh, and uh, and I won't be around to see it. But why not? If you believe in what you're doing, if you think what you're doing is uh, is is not too bad a thing, uh, if you've got um, the ability, the capacity, um, we could sell up, cash up. And then go and do something else. Start from scratch. Mm. Have to learn from scratch. Shit, we've got thirty years' experience doing what we're doing. 
if we could stumble across something that we had 30 years experience in and we're, we're pretty bloody good at it and there was a really built team that we knew, that would be the place we'd invest. Oh, hang on a minute, shit, <laughs> that's what we've got, so why would we get out? Mm. Um, let's just build on what we're doing and um, and see where it takes us. Mm, I love about hearing your story and going through it all. It seems this natural progression, which definitely had hard work, so there's not like this complete luck in it, but there's for sure opportunities as well that you just couldn't have planned for. And it's, it just seems like natural growth. You've pushed yourself hard, naturally progressed, and um, there have been a couple of hard knocks on the way for sure, but like it's actually all of it you've just seen as a grown because that mentality of, no, I'm going to get better at this. There's all this natural growth. Continuous improvement is a big thing for us. Uh, re- reassessing the situation, I suppose that comes from the certainly a sporting background helps that. Mm. But looking to get better, looking to evaluate what we've done. That's true. Uh, and, and and do it next time, do it better, uh, smarter, really sharper. Uh, so that's a big thing. I think I mentioned earlier, I've, I think I've had a disproportionate a level of good fortune come my way. Mm. Um, I'm actually, um, I do, I do have a, a Christian upbringing, and I, I, I have a a, a a faith, Catholic faith, and I think, uh, I personally think, some of that luck's come my way for a reason, and so that's why we do have a, we do have an obligation. I think I have an obligation uh, to, to do some good around the place. Um, so sometimes I think I've had uh, to hit the fan because we needed a kick in the ass and um, and don't get too cocky when things go too well uh, because they can turn, you know, don't, you don't have to take you off the ball for very long for the, the turn to crap again. Mm. So nothing's taken for granted. It needs, you don't just hit a formula and just roll it out, roll it out, roll it out. Um, part of the formula is always be on your toes and checking and reevaluating and and revising the plan. And, and tweaking the strategy, uh, but no, to, to date we've had a we, we've had a pretty good run. Mm. Um, a lot of hard work. Um, I remember telling my uh, oldest daughter a, a story. She asked me, and I can't remember exactly what she asked me now, but it was something along the lines of, "What's the difference between, um, you know, what's the meaning of life? Is it is it fun? And, and what's the difference between fun and and you know and, and whatever else we should be searching for?" Mm. And we hadn't been, we'd, we'd, we'd gone over to America as a family, wife, Michelle, and four kids a few years back. Uh, and this was a couple of years after that. So she might have been 15 years old. She's she's 17, pushing 18 now. And I said to her, we'd been to, um, we'd been to um, Universal Studios and we'd been to uh, Disneyland and done the roller coaster rides. And I said to her, those roller coaster rides, they were fun, weren't they? And she said, yeah, they were, they were a lot of fun. Yeah. And I said, yeah, and they were pretty scary, eh? Yeah, pretty scary. I said, do you sit back now and think they were a lot of fun? And she goes, yeah, I do. She, I said, do you, do you sit here now and ha- are you having fun now because they were a lot of fun? She goes, oh, no, no, no. no you've, and I said, you've got to be doing the roller coaster ride to have fun, don't you? She said, yeah. So it's fun while you're doing it, and then and then it's over. Mm. I said, um, and 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 she had done recently a school project on Ed Hillary or a study through of Ed Hillary, and I said, do you think? So she's familiar with with his, his um, endeavors, and I said, do you think 
climbing Ed Hillary climbing to uh, top of Mount Everest without oxygen, without any of the flash gear they got these days. Bloody frostbitten nose and toes and mm. and, and 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 hard grind. Do you think that was fun? And uh, she says, "No, I don't. I doubt that. That wasn't fun." I said, "But do you think he probably sits back in his chair now in his seventies and um, and sits back and thinks that was well worth doing? Do you, and do you think he sits back having a whiskey or a cup of tea or whatever he drinks in his rocking chair, uh, enjoying the sunset? Goes, yeah, that was well worth it." And and I have a deep satisfaction that of what I achieved, mm. not just the pursuit of Everest, but then his lifetime's work with the Nepalese and, and what he did through hospitals and schools and the community and whatnot and, and, and what he did for New Zealand. And she goes, yeah, no, nah, that would have been cool. Yeah, that, that, that certainly. I said, do you think you'll sit back when you're 70 and reminisce about those uh, roller coaster rides? She says, no, nah, probably not. So I said to her, oh, that's, that's for me, that's what I think the difference is. Uh, if you're searching for fun, absolutely, fun, the, the fun's got a component, but it's not everything. Fun and, and enjoyment is not the arts to life, um, and not, not that I'm a philosopher, but uh, I think satisfaction and sense of achievement and contribution uh, are a lot more longer-lasting. And they have uh, good parts and, and tough parts along mm. the way. And so for young aspiring buddy people kicking off, don't shirk the challenges. Don't look for the easy path. Look for the rewarding path. And mm. uh, and, and don't be misguided on on what truly is rewarding. Um, sometimes bloody, you know, uh, walking the hard yards at, at the time is are just hard yards, but later on they're rewarding. And um, later on – doesn't actually take that long for later on to come. Yeah. Mm. Mm, so good. So wise. Anything else you'd like to add for young professionals, a little bit of advice? Or? Um, don't be afraid to have a crack. Don't be afraid to be the only one heading in a certain direction. Mm. Uh, judge yourself against your own compass uh, and, uh, and, 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 and make sure you know what your compass is reading. But if everybody else isn't heading in that direction, don't don't necessarily let that put you off. Certainly sit there and question. But if you can't come up with a reason to to, to, to change path, keep making your own path. Mm. Um, if you make a credible path, you'll probably find uh, you'll look around one day and um, you know people might be chugging in behind you. Mm. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for your time. Yep. Hopefully you had fun, but yeah, awesome conversation. Yep. Good as gold, and um, yeah, I hope it hope helps somebody out there. And good luck. Cheers. Awesome. Thank you so much, Pat, for coming on the show. It's such a privilege to learn from your journey. A quote from this conversation I keep coming back to you guys is, don't shirk the challenges. Don't look for the easy path. Look for the rewarding path. It's the story of Suhead that Pat really mentions about the roller coasters and um, climbing Mount Everest that really, really sits with me. It's a fantastic reminder of focusing on what actually matters. Hey, if you found this conversation helpful in any way, which I truly hope you have, 
you probably know some people who would really benefit from listening. Why not share it with them? Hearing the stories of successful professionals is inspiring. That's why I started this podcast. Help encourage and inspire the students and young professionals in your life. Next week, we have Phil Southwood, an IT contractor and one of the early investors in Xero. Phil has a rich career working in New Zealand and Germany, embracing the gig economy before the phrase was even coined. If you're interested in learning about agile systems of working, what it's like to live in Germany, and what can happen if you don't wait and be patient in your career, this conversation is for you. Here is a story to challenge your perspectives on the normal career path. I hope you find Phil's journey as fascinating as I have. I'm looking forward to sharing the conversation with you next week. Until then, hi there da.